Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you now and ask that your presence would be with us mightily, that you would instruct us and teach us. We ask that though we go through various doctrines, even this, this afternoon, um, that we are familiar with or that we may have studied, oh Lord, would you teach us uh, afresh uh, these things once again, that we would not be so prideful to think that we know these things already and we allow our minds to wander, but allow us to be engaged, allow us to be attentive, allow us uh, to be instructed by you, uh, that we would marvel uh, at your work of salvation and how you have brought it about uh, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are continuing our um, study, if you will, on the foundations of the Reformed faith. The foundations of the Reformed faith, and we will begin a new four-week series now on uh, soteriology, uh, or essentially the doctrine of salvation. Um, this is a vast topic, as you can imagine, with um, many different areas to cover, but we're going to keep it pretty you know, straightforward since this is just truly a foundational approach. Um, the first two weeks we'll be looking really at the doctrines of grace, um, also known as the five points of Calvinism. Uh, we'll do the first two today, Lord willing, the next three next week. The third week will then be um, a survey, if you will. It has to be a survey because it's only one week on the doctrine of justification, um, at least walking through some of the um, essential aspects there. And then the final week, we'll be looking at the Ordo Salutis, um, which is the order of salvation. If you were to try to lay out, you know, how does salvation run from top to bottom, what does that kind of look like? Um, but before we actually dive in here, um, I put together, just using um, one of the resources I'm going through, if you could take one, pass it around. It is essentially for total depravity and unconditional election, various proof texts that you can walk through together as a family, on your own, however you want to approach it. Um, and I used the book, um, The Five Points of Calvinism, Defined, Documented, Defended. Uh, at the bottom of this is a little bibliography of the books that I am using to prepare for these classes and so forth. It is a recommended list that if you're interested, pick the books up. One such book is Living for God's Glory. We have it in the bookstore. Um, when we think of Calvinism, what is usually the thought? Like when you hear, somebody hears Calvinism, what do they usually think of? The five points. Would you agree? Like they, when you think of Calvinism, most people are thinking, oh, the five points and, you know, they don't want to hear about it or they love it. And, but Calvinism, what Beaky goes to show is truly more than just the five points. The five points summarize what Calvinists believe when it comes to the doctrine of salvation. But Calvinism is truly much more than that. Calvinism truly is really the whole of the Reformed faith. And Beaky talks about how that's lived out practically uh, in this book. If you want a book that's going to give you strictly the five points and all the proof texts and just, you know, very straightforward, the five points of Calvinism defined, documented, defended, which is on that list as well. Um, and then, of course, what I would, what's not on there. We're, we don't hold to a confession here, but the 1689 Confession of Faith, particularly chapters 3, 6, and 9. 3 deals with God's decree, 6 is going to deal with the fall, sin, and punishment, and chapter 9 is going to deal with free will. So those are the areas, in a sense, that we're kind of hitting today. Um, 
would recommend in there too, especially something like this, the way that they just have it laid out, they provide proof texts underneath each of the sections in there as well. Uh, general caveats with the 1689 on Sabbatarianism and, and so forth, but definitely worth studying and, and going through there. Um, okay, so while we walk through this, what I wanted to do before diving into the specific doctrines of grace was to do you know, a brief expedited walk through church history. And I think this is important for a couple reasons. Um, it's good for us to understand how did the five points of Calvinism come to their formulation, come to fruition. Uh, it's, uh, it's understanding that this wasn't just all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're going to, here's the five points and there you go. Uh, but, so we'll look at how did they come about? What were the circumstances? What was going on at that time? Secondly, we often hear history repeats itself. Well, in addition to that, so does heresy and bad doctrine. Um, and so we want to look at what did we see in church history and how did we see it repeated? Um, and then finally, understanding these historical positions of different groups like Pelagianism, let's say, which really should be a non-issue, um, but really Arminianism in particular, um, you know, when you're comparing them side by side and looking at them, it really shines forth like the vast difference between one camp and the other camp. One camp that essentially puts man in God's place and God in man's place, and the other that truly puts God where he belongs. Um, that's what I'm hoping we kind of see as we work uh, through this. It's just what we should see is the wisdom of God shine forth in the area of salvation. Um, in all areas, but specifically just with what we're looking at here. So, when considering this doctrine of salvation, what we want to look at is, um, you know, what is it that the early church believed um, because when you're considering the doctrine of salvation and how someone's saved, where you land, where you see yourself or your understanding um, on sin, on grace, on God's sovereignty, and on human responsibility will likely determine how you view you know, your role in salvation, uh, your understanding of how salvation comes about, and so forth. So, from an early church perspective, um, they had to wrestle with these same ideas. You know, you know, you have parties involved. What do they do? So where do you think the early church fell when it comes to the doctrine of salvation? Were they Calvinist? Well, early. So you're talking, I mean, before Augustine, um, you're talking, uh, yeah, like early, early church, uh, origin and so forth. What, did, what, what do you think they were dealing with? Where do you think they kind of rested, like as far as, you know, salvation goes? Monergistic or synergistic? You would think so. They were actually synergistic in what they thought. Um, they're synergistic, which simply is a fancy word to say that they thought that there was a cooperation between God and man and how salvation came, came about. And what they were trying to reconcile ultimately was, well, man does have free will, um, but they also held to the sovereignty of God. This is what Greg Allison says in his historical theology. He says, therefore, the church placed a strong emphasis on human free will and self-determination, and at the same time, it affirmed the sovereignty of God. So you've got to ask, how do you maintain the sovereignty of God 
and human free will as far as choosing and so forth. Like, how do you reconcile those? Because that's what you have to be able to do with each of these different items. And this will sound familiar because it's going to where we're going to be spending some of our time. But they too uh, were able to reconcile this at least on the surface because that's the key. I think if you truly drive the early church, those who made up the early church, if you truly drive semi-Pelagians and you know essentially Arminians to consistency, then you're going to find that that's where things start to fall apart. That's why I say on the surface they were able to reconcile these because of how they viewed the foreknowledge of God. How did they view the foreknowledge of God, do you think? Have you heard the arguments? Yeah, well, they would look, he, right, he would look ahead, and he would see that you would choose him, and therefore, he elected you. So where does that place the emphasis of salvation? On man. And so they, it, it was based on his foreknowledge of something we would do, specifically uh, choosing him that he then, you know, chose us. So he would look ahead to future. We choose him, therefore he chose us. Which at its very core is to say that God's decision and how he determined things would be done is based on what we would do. That's why you can see where, at the end of the day, you start breaking down what this actually means more than just surface level, and you start to see the whole system kind of fall apart. Um, because of what you're, where you're placing man, you're saying that man is sovereign. God's not sovereign. And that's a problem. Because what does the Bible say? God is sovereign. Man is not sovereign. So we start to have issues there. Now, as far as the early church is concerned, we have to understand, I mean, I can even allow for some of Origen's, you know, Trinitarian, like, workings, because these men didn't have people to stand on, on the shoulders of giants, so to say, before them. They were formulating all of this based on just what they had in the scriptures from the apostles passed down and so forth, whereas what do we have? I just gave you a whole book list of these are the dudes to look at and to study on that have worked out all of these issues over history. And so, you know, sometimes when we look back and we're like, what, they were synergistic? How can that be? It's like, well, let's show some grace. We don't have as much of an excuse now as they would have had uh, maybe uh, back then. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know, like, the full, you know, uh, church history as far as, you know, where it kind of flowed down, like, as far as who was interacting with who. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, from this, what we do see is that they, um, they had this synergistic approach that somehow what they were dealing with, even in their atmosphere of what was going on, I mean, you had a lot of philosophical thought going on, that if God solely chooses, this is an argument we always hear, if God chooses then where's the human responsibility? Why am I responsible if God is the one that chooses? And so they were trying to balance that out, much like you see people try to do today. The problem is, I think, that you're trying to bring like human logic. It's like as if the Bible has to be subjected to, can we explain it perfectly in every way? Uh, does everything make sense to us as far as how it would work? And that's what you see happening is, is, well, we've got to be able to make sense of it for it to be true. 
And that's not the way it works. There's much that, because we are not God, we may not understand. And we may not fully understand how it goes that he can decree all things. And yet, even from an evil, like, you know, the, the presence of evil and so forth, he, he's not responsible. We don't understand all that. And so uh, we have to under, realize that it's not based on our reasoning onto how we can, like, you know, lay these out. What it often depends on is which system do you see between, you know, what is essentially Arminian almost to start, and then semi-Pelagian and so forth, which system is most consistent with what Scripture teaches when it comes to the doctrine of salvation? Which system seeks to glorify God with all the glory that he deserves? And which system, that if you truly get down to it, leaves room for glorying in man, glorying in ourselves? Um, that's what we should be kind of, you know, looking at here. Um, now, that's not to say that the, the early church didn't slowly start to move away from this. Uh, we have people like Cyprian, Ambrose, and Hillary, who, while still adhering to a synergistic model, did start to work out some of the ideas on original sinfulness and seeing, like, wait, salvation, like, must be or, or should be monergistic, so they were starting to, you know, work these things out, but they were like kind of the forerunners, if you will. Um, that's what Burkhoff says. He says, in the writings of Cyprian, there's an increasing tendency towards the doctrine of the original sinfulness of man and of a monergistic renewal of the soul. And so he ultimately says, as you start to see this as a gradual preparation for Augustine to come on the scene. But before he comes on the scene, we have an, another individual to deal with, which... Um, Pelagian or Pelagianism um, this really shouldn't be an issue because of just how out there his thoughts were anybody know what Pelagius held to yeah he denied the effects of original sin meaning what Yeah, he basically was, every person stands on their own. We've heard of this, the phrase tabula rasa. Everybody is born as a blank slate, and therefore they can be, um, you know, sinless, uh, counted righteous based on what they do. This was condemned uh, Council of Ephesus, I think around 529 AD. Um, this is like not even close when you start, I mean, anybody that's looking at scripture, it's like, okay, you can see that, you know, so this was, this led the way, though, to who fought against him? Augustine. What did he bring to the table? One big word. If you were to think of the word, it starts with a P. Predestination, right? So he brought uh, predestination uh, to the forefront. He rejected, these guys were diametrically opposed to each other. Um, and um, he brought a scriptural view of sin um, on original sin as well uh, and its effects. Um, he viewed it though, Augustine did not view it in a covenantal way necessarily. He viewed it truly as just everybody seminally was in Adam and then naturally, you know, sin passes down versus. Uh, Adam as a covenant 
federal representative of, of humankind. That is truly really where um, the reformers came into play. The reformers, you know, what they held to and what Calvin really developed and brought more clarity to was um, a lot of this early thought even from Augustine and those that followed on regards to predestination, original sin, but what the reformers brought out was much of the um, covenantal aspect. Even then, it can, that, that aspect continued to grow as time went on as well. Um, so what he said was that predestination, because of original sin, it's not merited, and it's not based on free will. That it's not based on free will. And so we begin to see here the monergistic framework, if you will, of where this started to really come to the forefront. Um, but after that, we had a group of individuals come up called semi-Pelagian. Based on what we looked at here and here, where do you think they fell? What do you got? Yeah, well, so they denied, they understood that original sin, you know, did have an impact. It did have an impact. Um, but that uh, what they basically um, said, though, is that it wasn't such that it impinged upon man's free will. So that's why it's like, you know, you start looking and saying, okay, you know, they had a synergistic approach. You see a synergistic approach here as well because the way that they view sin is uh, pollution. Uh, they view sin as uh, disease and sickness, not as being in bondage, not as being dead, which we're going to get into. And so because you are just sick, you just got to go and like just take medicine and choose to take the medicine and you're good. So that's where the free will comes in. So they, along the lines of Augustine, would say, yeah, we understand there's original sin, but it's only slightly impactful upon us, kind of hinders us somewhat. And um, we think that we have free will. So you start to see how these uh, repeat themselves. And so that's then, like I said, where we get to uh, the Reformed aspect, where the Reformers really took from here, developed it in a covenantal way um, as far as how they viewed Adam and his role. And all of this was related to how they viewed original sin, not merely, not merely pollution, but that it was thorough in its impact in man, such that it is such that we are dead. We are unable, um, unwilling. These are all key phrases when it comes to Calvinistic thought. Arminian thought is going to be ability, free will, synergistic, and so forth. What you're going to see here is all of the things that kind of denounce that unable, unwilling. Uh, dead, depraved, however you want to, whatever categories you want to use. And Arminianism essentially follows in line with this. It's, it's as if you have like one back here, you have two here, and then the third that comes on is Arminianism, 
which this will be the bulk of our comparison between Calvinism and Arminianism. From Jacob Arminianus, he used to be, he was at one point a Calvinist. And he uh, ended up breaking away from that and uh, teaching that, no, much like what these individuals believed, it is pollution, it is you know, disease and sickness. Um, um, and much like here, his foreknowledge is that we would have chosen him and therefore he elected us. So this is the historical rundown um, of how we get to this point because it was at this point that what happened was Arminianism wrote um, a, a document called the Remonstrance in 1610 that went to uh, a synod, Synod of Dort. Not sure if you've heard that phrase, but the Synod of Dort, where they submitted a document asking that the Reformed position be, um, you know, amended, um, amended, uh, let's see what I have here, uh, revise the Reformed Church's doctrinal standards as well as to protect the Arminian views. So we've got to understand what we're dealing with here is not just a, you know, light thing when you talk about it came to the fact that a synod was needed and, and so forth. But they wanted their views protected. They wanted the Reformed Church's position to uh, be uh, revised, if you will. So the five points of Arminianism that they presented in their document was election based on foreseen faith, universe, the universality of Christ's atonement, um, free will and partial depravity of man. You see? So that's how they're reconciling. Oh, we're not fully depraved, just partially, and so we have free will. Resistibility of grace... Um, and the possibility of a lapse from grace. And the reason this is so serious is because you are um, um, essentially threatening the very gospel itself in many ways as far as you're, 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 you're taking the sovereignty that belongs to God alone and putting it in the hands of men. And so in response to that, in 1619, they came up with what's called the canons of Dort. Now, these canons, you have to understand, are... Uh, numerous. It's not just five points. The five points summarize, you know, what they basically believed, and they did it in uh, four points technically as far as how they grouped them, but we often know it as tulips. So, but the way that they laid it out was unconditional election and saving faith are the sovereign gifts of God. The efficacy of Christ's death is limited to the elect uh, totally depraved, such that free will cannot be exercised in salvation. And that's key because we can do things that are like good on a day-to-day, but the, the distinction here is because we're totally depraved, we can't do anything spiritually good. We can truly do nothing about our spiritual state. And so that's why there's an emphasis there. Irresistible grace in calling and regenerating the elect, and then, of course, preservation of the saints. And so this truly is um, you know, how we got there, how they were formulated. Oftentimes you go and you talk to somebody and they're like, oh, you're a Calvinist. And it's like a bad word to them. And they're like terrified of you. This is why it's good to understand. These weren't just generated, you know, just because. And the five points are really only a small subset of all that Calvinism is uh, when, we, when we think through. And what we want to walk away from is that when, we, when these were uh, generated and uh, put together, it was because this is how we see God uh, presented in Scripture as far as his sovereignty and how man is saved and who we are. 
Um, it's truly no little issue from that perspective. Now, what we have to understand about these five points is how many of us have heard the term, I'm a four-point Calvinist? We hear that, right? Is that a possibility? What's that? Of course. Um, but again, that's why on the surface level, you're like, oh, okay, sweet, like, good, you know? Um, but at the end of the day, um, these points stand or fall together on both sides of the spectrum. Um, I don't see, you know, you can't say I'm totally depraved, and yet I choose God. You have to believe unconditional election. And if you're unconditionally elected, then you have to understand that Christ didn't die for everyone, but solely for those whom the Father unconditionally elected. And so you see how it kind of goes down. And if God is sovereign, can he be resisted? No. So you can see how all of these, it's not just, oh, well, I'm four of those because I don't like limited atonement. Then we have, you know, then there's not consistency. And that's why I say which grouping, which teaching, if you will, presents the most consistent uh, doctrine in line with Scripture, which is the ultimate, obviously. So total depravity. This is the right place to start, even though obviously they're, they didn't, you know, they didn't sit there and be like, oh, what acronym can we come up with? Oh, TULIP works, and here's how we're going to lay it out. But with total depravity, it is a solid place, a good place to start, because it deals with the effect of sin. If you understand the impact of sin upon a man, then you're going to, there's no way you can possibly think, I had anything to do with this. Um, I have it somewhere in here, J.C. Ryle, a J.C. Ryle quote, that he says this, the believer who knows his own heart will ever bless God for election. Um, Spurgeon says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. And I'm quite sure he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterward. So, I, I have that under the unconditional election spot, but the reason I bring that up now is because when we understand total depravity and the true effect of sin upon us, we have no business being elected by God or thinking that we would choose God and that he would then elect us and so forth. Um, so Arminianism, right? Sin has had an impact on mankind. Um, it's on the weaker end because of disease and sickness. They don't see it's, you know, that it truly has made us spiritually dead. Um, but what do we see with Scripture? Well, the Scriptures indicate it's more than just pollution that is at, you know, that is here, that in Adam as our federal head and our covenant representative, what spread to all men was not simply a weakened nature, uh, but a nature that has been corrupted through and through. So when we talk about corruption, um, what are we saying? How corrupt are we? If you remember when Emilio kind of did the introduction, what did he say it doesn't represent? Do you recall? Utter, utter depravity. So it's not uh, utter depravity. Um, but I would say it is a thorough depravity. depravity it's thorough in every aspect um, 
that we know, that, that, that we see in our life. Um, this is what um, Beakey says. He says, our depravity impacts every aspect of who we are by nature, our intellects, our consciences, our emotions, our ambitions, our wills, which are the citadels of our souls, are all enslaved to sin. All of them. Such that God looks into man's heart, he finds every area damaged and polluted by sin. So there's no good in us is another way of saying that. And so to think that we can choose God or we have any part in that is to say that there was an area of good within us. But that's not what we see in Scripture. The, the, the opposite is such that what spread to all men was death and condemnation. Death and condemnation is what spread. That's what we see as the covenant curse. It says, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, did he die when he ate that fruit? That's right. Spiritually, he died. Physically, that was to come later. But immediate spiritual death. Immediate spiritual death. That was something he experienced upon eating of the fruit. And that is obviously then what was passed on. And so we see that even as uh, the covenant curse. And it came not only for him, but for all men. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.18, So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. So we see that it is death and condemnation that spread, not disease and sickness. The Bible is very like specific when it you know refers to these things he even says that like those in psalm i think it's psalm 51 or psalm 55 or 53 one of those where he says like you know that people go astray from birth not just they go astray and you're like well when do they go astray very specific from birth they go astray which is just remarkable we should praise the lord for like that type of specificity it gives us um, you know, direction as to what we ought to believe. So though, though we are born alive physically, we come into this world dead spiritually. It's important for us to understand that. I mean, this is what we see just from a couple other verses. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is who we were by nature. Children of wrath, it says. Colossians 2.3, you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcisions of your flesh. But notice, to finish that verse, what has to happen? He makes us alive. We don't make ourselves alive. Have you ever seen a dead person do anything? No, of course not. And so that's why we see in Colossians 2.13, he made you alive together with him. A little bit later in Ephesians 2, but God made us alive. And so it's very clear that the only thing we bring to the table in salvation is our sin. And as far as the thoroughness, again, it's, it's a... Uh, it, it, it goes into various areas. Some of the, on the, 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 the handout you have uh, alludes to this, but we're slaves to sin. Romans 6. Read through there about the, the, the being slaves of sin. And then what happens when you become obedient from the heart? 
That is because he has changed us. He has called us. Um, we have darkened minds, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of their hardness of heart. This is the condition of man. It's thorough. It's our minds. It's uh, where we are as far as uh, being slaves to sin. And it's also our heart. The heart is what? We've looked at this numerous times. What is the heart? Desperately wicked, but as far as we're concerned, what does the heart represent for us? That's right, our will, the totality of who we are is how Scripture refers to the heart, right? Keep watch over your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. And here's how Scripture describes the heart. We just said, right, um, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. And we see right after the fall, or, you know, at least chapter-wise, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Where's the goodness in our hearts in that verse? It's not there. Genesis 8, 21, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I think we all understand that. Yeah, so I'll have to look into that. That's a good question. I didn't read like all of their like points because I was even thinking about that. Like, where do you, because to me and to us, probably we're sitting here saying like, this is so obvious. Um, and I think again, because you do see passages where you see human responsibility and so forth. And so they would probably appeal to those things. One of the ones that we'll get into on election in particular is Romans 8.28, where it says those whom he foreknew, he predestined. So we're going to look at that as far as what does it mean, those whom he foreknew? When, the, when all that was going down between the reformers and the Arminians, is there a reason that the reformers didn't respond and, and say that this is heresy, what they're espousing? So that came out as far as the Synod of Dort was concerned. Now, remember, that was the remonstrance of 1610. Uh, the Synod of Dort convened um, in 1618, and the actual canons were issued in 1619. And so it truly had come to a head by the time 1618 came around, that things got kind of so bad between them that it was like, okay, we need to like settle this. And that is essentially what came from the Synod of, of Dort. So, in this, so what was the purpose of the Synod of Dort? To address this 1610 remonstrance that the Armenians put together officially and finally, and they condemned it. Yeah, it was a mix of, a, a, I think, 53 different, like, delegates, if you will, that came from kind of all over Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so then those 53 delegates, um, they, you know, threw that out the door, but, you know, we, we would look at our Armenian brothers and say, you're not in heresy, maybe you're heterodox. Is mm. there a reason that they opted to not just put that black and white of a statement on this? Yeah, so I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but... Um, yeah, you know, I don't think that they're not brothers or sisters, yeah, right? right? Um, but there's danger in what they believe. And so what we want to seek to do is to 
uh, instruct them, much like, you know, um, Apollos, you know, being taught more correctly the way. Um, you, we would want to do that with them as well, just instructing them in Scripture and helping them to see. And we all know, we, I was Armenian at one point, so we all know, like, that's kind of where we all start, if you will. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, yeah. but... Um, yes. No, no, no. I'm saying that there's Armenians are still brothers and sisters. I wouldn't call them, or wouldn't say that they're not. I'm saying that they need to be instructed more accurately in the way, much like we see, like with Apollos and Corinthians and so forth, where um, Priscilla and Aquila, you know, pulled him aside and taught him the way of God more accurately. Um, I think that's what needs to be done. I do think that there's a lot of danger. There's a reason that they specifically proclaim that this was not the orthodox view. Um, sure. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. They're, it's not that they're not saved, um, but we're yeah. But it's yeah. Mm. I'm saying that's what the line of thought does. You got to understand, like, if you follow all, if you follow consistently their doctrine all the way through, it ultimately leads to universalism. Mm -hmm. We understand that, right? We'll get into that next week. But because of Christ's efficacious death and, and so forth, you would eventually, that's where if you're consistent all the way through, and I think that many Armenians, that's where you'll see is that they're not consistent. Because I can go and talk to an Armenian and say, do you believe God's sovereign? Yep, not an issue. And then you start pressing them on, and part of it is just a lack of understanding on the reconciliation of human responsibility, God's sovereignty, the impact of sin, the grace that he gives. All of those have to be reconciled with what Scripture teaches. Um, and so, no, it's not that they're not saved. It's just they need to be taught uh, just as we all need to be taught. So no difference there. Uh, the fact that by nature we are dead and thoroughly impacted by sins uh, means that we are unable to do anything about our condition. So I'm trying to walk through, right? So we looked at spiritual deadness. Now we're looking at the inability or, or the fact that we are unable to do anything. John, uh, Job 14.4, very simple and straightforward here. Uh, who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So the obvious picture there is they can't do that. So then you can't do good. You're accustomed to doing evil. And then, of course, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. But it gets worse than that in some sense because while we are unable, even let's say we were completely able. There's an unwillingness. There's an unwillingness. It's not even something we desire. Um, what do we desire? What do we see uh, Scripture say? But first, C.S. Lewis, I'm not a fan of C.S. Lewis, but this quote is good, okay? Um, it said something like, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. We've all heard that many times, but it's so, I mean, it just paints the picture um, as to uh, truly where our desires lie. We have no desire to fellowship with God in our natural state. Um, therefore, to think as the Armenians do, as what they present, 
uh, would require uh, believing that in our natural state we have this desire to know God. Um, that's not the case. Listen to Christ's words when he laments over Jerusalem. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How I often wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her uh, chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Uh, so where is our will oriented? Uh, John eight forty four. it's to do the will of our father, the devil. That is in our natural state. Not now. We understand that distinction as far as uh, once we have been made alive, that is no longer the case. But certainly prior to that, uh, that is the state we were all in. Um, and so we can certainly see the need here um, for us to be regenerated, to be made new, for God to work in us. Because unless he does, uh, there truly is no hope for us. And so even as I said kind of at the beginning, it's this understanding of, of our nature that would logically lead us to the consideration of unconditional election. That um, really, if we see ourselves as totally depraved and therefore dead, unable, unwilling, and that there's no good in us, then it must follow that the election of anyone unto salvation has to come from God. Has to. Um, now, as essential as unconditional election is, there is opposition. What is the opposition that we normally hear when it comes to unconditional election? I got two. First, it's what we've been talking about, it does away with human responsibility. It does away with human responsibility. And in many ways, it can lead to what people would say, well, if I'm elected, then I'm going to be believing. If I'm not elected, then let the chips fall where they may. It is what it is. And right, it's almost like a fatalistic type perspective in many ways. Secondly, along the same lines, and I'm sure we've heard this at some point from some hyper-Calvinist or somebody that doesn't understand doctrines of grace uh, that is not, you know, reformed. They say, if people are elected, then why evangelize? That's right. Why evangelize? So, why should we evangelize? Yeah, that's, that's, to me, that's the crux of the issue. It's it, election does not equal salvation in the sense of the act of electing isn't salvation. It just identifies those who will be saved. But God has, the, the God who has decreed and elected those who would be, be saved has also decreed the means by which they will be saved. Which, how are people saved? That's right, through hearing the word and the preaching of the gospel. And so, um, you know, uh, you initially hear an argument like that, and it's, oh, no, no, it's, you know, but it's like just, you know, we have responsibility, if, if, even if nothing else, to be obedient because God has commanded us to share the gospel. So we have a responsibility, regardless if nobody's ever saved from our preaching of the gospel, we need to be obedient. So, as we've looked at, Arminians um, hold to conditional election, that it's based on the condition that we would choose him, and so he elected us. And as I said, Romans 8, 29, this is what we read there. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Well, what is the issue here? What's the distinction that's being made? Uh, in this case, the, what the Armenians are essentially saying is that God foresaw or foreknew the action of the individual. The action 
i.e. that they would choose God. What we say Scripture says there, uh, in, in particular, especially just the way the verse reads, it's those whom he foreknew. It's not the action that he's seeing. It's the individual that he sees, that he foreknows. Um, and in that foreknowing, you know, for God to know is to love in that sense, that saving sense. And so that's also where we see in uh, unconditional election this idea of it being personal and intimate. It's not just this unknown group that he gathers together, but each and every one of us, if you are in Christ, have been elected before the foundation of the world to spend eternity with him, even though we're totally depraved and don't deserve it. I mean, that's the thing that just blows my mind, even as I was preparing this. It's like, we truly know, like we're, um, I don't know who said, I'm, the quote's even not even in my mind right now, so I'm going to maybe come back to that. Um, yes. And the uh, defining of word know as well. I think people define it today in their common understanding of the English for know. And I remember Emilio teaching before that the, the root of the word prognosis or prognosco or something like that um, was like God covenanting a relationship with those beforehand. Right. So not just like an, an, like an awareness of them, but yeah. like an intentional like desire. That's right. And a covenanting of. Yeah, and that's a good point. That's what I was trying to convey by for him to truly know, because he knows all things. He's not unaware of what's going on outside these walls. But to truly know um, is his covenant love. That's why it's, you know, even in the judgment in Matthew 7, 21, many are going to come to him and say, I did this and I did that. And he said, what is he going to say? Depart from me. I never knew you. So well, did he not know what they did? Or is it, right, that covenantal knowing? Um, so I think that's, you know, that's a good, good addition. Um, and so our response in regards to uncondi- uh, is, is that of unconditional election. It's essentially that the election of man is not based on anything that man has done or will do. covers the full spectrum. Instead, it's solely based on God's good pleasure and sovereign will. Um, the doctrine of unconditional election must certainly be understood in light of our total depravity. That's essential. That's what we've been looking at. But as I thought through this, um, it must also be viewed in light of the covenant of redemption, even kind of, you know, looking at what you'd mentioned. And the reason for this is because salvation is not about us. Salvation is not about us. We receive the benefits of salvation, and that doesn't diminish the fact that we are made in the image of God and, and so forth. But salvation is not ultimately about us. I hope you understand the point that I'm making is that in our culture today, everything's about us. Salvation is not about us ultimately, but it is about us. It's about the Father's love for the Son, such that in the covenant established before the foundation of the world, the Father elected, chose, and predestined a specific group of people for his Son's own possession. It's about the Son's love for the Father, such that he willingly condescended to save his enemies, to suffer at the hands of men that he was even sustaining in that moment, and to take upon himself the wrath that we deserve and to procure salvation for the elect uh, in submission to his Father's will. And it's about the Spirit's love for the Father and the Son such that he regenerates, calls, applies, and secures uh, the elect that the Father has chosen and the Son has died for. So you can see how really this full Trinitarian work of salvation brings everything to the you know, full circle, if you will. It's not just some random act 
but was truly triune in nature for his glory and our good. Um, and so to say that we are elect because of something we would do truly is the height of human pride. Truly is the height of human pride and to take away glory from the sovereign triune God. It gives us a reason to boast. In a sense, to say we choose, and we'll get into this real, oh, man. Okay. It's, you fixed the clock, right? Okay. We have to end there. Um, man. Okay. Yep. We got to end there. Let's go worship.